Welcome everyone to Davos Fingers, episode five. It is time to begin growing up. Welcome, uh, welcome everyone. We've got uh, our usual cast of characters here: Scott, myself. Uh, we have Brooke and we have Matt. Toodles. Hello. And uh, we made it to five. Holy we made cow. it to episode five. We did not give up. We did not go quietly <laughs> into the night. And we will not. And we will not. Nope. Today we'll be uh, using the same format as always. We'll have uh, some brief summaries of uh, of the chapters we've covered, uh, which this week are Eddard's fourth chapter, Tyrion's third, Arya's second, Danny's third, and Bran's fourth. Uh, according to the Wiki of Ice and Fire, uh, that's chapters twenty to twenty four of A Game of Thrones. So uh, just a reminder, we are spoiler-free uh, until the very end of the podcast. We have one section of the podcast at the end called Davos After Dark, uh, which is super spoilery. Uh, don't worry, we will warn you with a nice musical interruption as well as we usually verbally warn you also. Uh, also, if you want to contact us to provide feedback, ask us questions, or encourage the exploration of your favorite fray, uh, reach out to us through davosfingers.com, which will redirect you to our Tumblr site. Uh, we have an email, wearedavosfingers at gmail.com, Twitter at davosfingers, or find us and like us on Facebook. Also, I want to remind everyone we are on iTunes. Uh, if you like what you hear, give us a positive review there. I'm sure people would love to, to read those. So, uh, without further ado, let's just dive right in. Uh, Brooke, I think you were going to take us through Eddard's chapter. Sounds good. Winter is coming. Like a dire wolf prowling in the dark He'll take off your head But his friends call him Ned Warden of the North Yeah, he's Eddard Stark My favorite fray is Wanda Right, so Eddard This is the chapter that starts getting the book's engines revving, in my opinion uh, The long ride from Winterfell to King's Landing is over and Ned arrives tired, sore, and also immediately called into a meeting of the small council. He tries to get out of it, but it's by the king's command, apparently. Varys, Littlefinger, the Grand Meister Pycelle, and Renly are all there. Renly gets an entire paragraph dedicated to how dapper he's dressed, and there is mention of a flattering dark green velvet. I'm totally digging it, because I love Renly and his easygoing tood and his clever banter. Um, so, yes, George, please always tell us more about his sweet wardrobe. Uh, everyone except for Ned, who is a tight-ass Stark, seems to have sort of like a surface-level casual rapport, like they've worked together forever. Sounds familiar, White, right, guys? Huh. Yeah. <laughs> and are all in on the big joke that is Robert's kingship. They even make fun of Ned for expecting Robert to actually show up for his own council meeting. Uh, Renly puts it well when he says, The business of coin and crops and justice bores the king to tears, so he leaves it to the council to govern the realm. Which, uh, like, heads up listeners, that's a red flag, spoilers or not. Robert does issue a command once in a while, and the command that brought the council together on this night is to hold a tournament or tourney to honor the new hand of the king, which is Ned. This, of course, horrifies Ned. One, because he's naturally humble. And two, because it'll cost the kingdom over 100,000 gold pieces. And we discover during the course of this meeting that there are already over 3 million gold pieces in the hole. 
mostly owed to the Lannisters. So, like, cue the Scooby-Doo mid-arc theme music here. Man, this is Spooksville. Anyways, the meeting wraps up with Ned musing over what a crap fest his new position is. And uh, before he can escape to a hot bath and some Ned time, Littlefinger pulls him out of the castle grounds, claiming that Catelyn is waiting. Ned, of course, is like, WTF, but ends up following Littlefinger, who is being a sarcastic, smug a-hole about it, all the way to a brothel that Littlefinger owns. Ned thinks the whole thing is a jape, which is hilariously old wordy and is a word choice I love. Um, sure enough, Catelyn is there, but not like like working there. Uh, they <laughs> hug. Cat- Catelyn brings him up to speed on the whole Bran attempted stabbing debacle. And Ned has the devastating realization that he might have made a huge mistake in killing Sansa's wolf lady and letting... Arya's wolf Nymeria loose. So he gets right away that Bran's wolf saved Bran's and probably Catelyn's life. Uh, they all muse on Hugh, who might be the murderer, and it's just like the Lannisters in general that have the honor of being suspect number one. He ends up sending Catelyn back to Winterfell without even seeing her daughters, since there might be additional assassination attempts and he needs her back there as <laughs> the excellent human shield she's proven to be. All of this is discussed while Littlefinger is still in the room and Ned finally kicks him out and tells Catelyn in secret that she needs to rally the Lords of the North to start fortifying the North's borders because Ned thinks war with the Lannisters is on the horizon. So Catelyn asks him what he's going to do about the assassination attempt, and Ned promises that he'll investigate to find the true owner of the dagger that was used to try and kill Bran. Then once he knows the truth, he'll have to risk bringing that truth to Robert, the king, even if it is a Lannister special. So he's pretty nervous about that. Uh, so that's the end of the chapter. And and right away, if it's cool with you guys, I like to talk out this whole, like, Ned being totally paranoid about war breaking out um, and telling Catelyn to get everybody armed and ready. What's with that? Do you, does anyone else feel like that is overkill? Yeah, it took me totally by surprise. I mean, uh, the first time, obviously. Um, <laughs> it, yeah, it kind of comes out of nowhere. I mean, you're, you're having this conversation like who, you know, who's behind it, all this kind of, I'll use the term backdoorsy again, kind of discussion about uh, what's, what's going on. Um, and, and then all of a sudden they kick Peter out and it's like, okay, wartime. Like, wait, what? What did, what what major action beat did I miss here where there's a war on? I mean, who benefits yeah, from a war? Sure, honey. <laughs> yeah. I don't know who benefits. I don't know what, not, not, that, not that in this world you necessarily always need a reason to invade somebody, but I don't know what reason anybody would have to start a war with him at this point. I don't really get it. Yeah, it's not really clear what value the North as land holds other than just being, like, property. Like, what resources are they, what are, are appealing to the Lannisters who, as we have learned, have uh, gold mines on their property? Yeah, great question. Yeah. I don't know why anyone would bother. Probably some... untapped oil resources, but I don't think that they've harnessed, <laughs> like... <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, anyways. I know White Harbor has a lot of stuff, but uh, it doesn't seem like good enough reason to, like you guys said, start a war over it. On the other hand, what else 
was Neb to do? Well, so okay, this so there's nothing wrong with being prepared. I'm sure Matt, you're, you're a, a boy he's scout. A boy scout. Yeah, I, I was. I, an I'm not. Scout, baby. I'm not. But there's nothing wrong with being prepared and 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 doing this. It's just the earnestness in which he delivers this message. Like as soon as the, as soon as little fingers out the door, it's like okay, this is what we got to do, or the family's going down. Like you know, it just seemed very very focused and earnest when it's like you know we should probably be careful when you get home you know talk to these guys make sure they're getting ready you know just be aware it just seemed very it just seemed like an overreaction i don't know true i I think he sees the the journeying down to king's landing in the company of the lannisters and then going to this council meeting and stuff he sees how much control the Lannisters actually wield in the kingdom and especially realizing how in debt the kingdom is to them, seeing how much Cersei runs the show, uh, Jamie almost being appointed a warden along with Ty- Tywin already being one. Um, I think Ned's just using a little bit of foresight and going, you know what, they're slowly taking over this kingdom and the one place they haven't penetrated yet is the north and it looks like they tried by trying to kill my son. And so I I think he's just trying to be prepared. Is it a little drastic? Yeah, maybe. But I think he's just noticing that little by little, the Lannisters are taking this place over. Okay, so Matt, you took my bait. I, I agree with that. So what the hell is he doing in King's Landing? So one of the things that, that you've seen throughout, since they left Winterfell, it's been nothing but a shitstorm for the Starks. He, fi- he realizes that he can't reach Bob Triple B at all anymore. He can't talk to him, he can't reason with him, he can't reach him at all. So he's got no influence to do the job that he's meant to do. Arya basically goes on trial for her life, for uh, you know a little flesh wound given to Joffrey in dubious circumstances. A lady is killed. Catelyn shows up to express that Bran's life has been attempted as soon as Ned left Winterfell. The council doesn't, he doesn't get along with the council and hates all the people he's working with. Like, it just doesn't fit for him. Like how many how many signs does he need? Like you know what? Maybe I should just get out of here. This is not for me. He's not a quitter. Agreed. <laughs> He's not. You know what, Matt? Your your rundown actually really helped, like, with the acceptance of this drastic turn of events. I like it. And Scott, I am hearing what you're saying, but. Yeah, he is a stubborn Stark, and he has accepted this position, and he's going to do his damnedest to make sure that he does it honestly and correctly. So, I, th- yeah, I think it's I think it's also that he doesn't believe in signs. Ah, uh, are you sure about that? Yeah. One of the things I wanted to bring up was the fact that he recognized that John, uh, when they originally found the wolf pups, John said, "Lord Stark, these pups were meant for your children." And when he hears the story of how Summer saved Bran and Catelyn, he he thinks back to that sign about how true it was. And then, like, has this dreadful regret that he killed, uh, killed Lady. He actually questions it. He's like, is this guilt I'm feeling? Obviously a man not used to feeling such a petty emotion. And even later, he mentions to Littlefinger that um, it was a huge mistake to kill one of the wolves. I, I don't I don't think that he is ruled by suspicions and superstitions, but he does he does recognize the pieces falling into place. Well, t- to me, you just proved my point. If he believed oh, yeah. in superstitions, then he would have thought that when as soon as he was as soon as John said these were meant for your children, then he'd been like, oh, yeah, that's right. 
what it took for him was evidence mm-hmm. to to see the sign, right? And I, uh, Catelyn mentions that I think it's in the first chapter that Catelyn and and, Nark- and, and, and Ned are together, uh, where she just where she just says she mentions that her husband doesn't see signs. So I'm taking it partly from that, but mm. I think he just he sees these things as as all isolated incidents not adding up to some culmination of we should get the fuck out of Dodge. <laughs> now there's like a mudslide of evidence that, like you said, this is just a shit show. I get it. No. Okay. I agree with you. Hey, Scott, but you're, you're right. He's Yay! not going <laughs> to, I, I don't, I don't think he'd leave necessarily though yet. No, uh, no he wouldn't. He looks he, away from he knows that he, we think he should, but he's there. Well, and part of me wonders if it, I talked about this, I think, back in the first episode, but I think there might be him thinking he can help, honestly, and help try to fix things. Uh, he's going to learn really quickly, that, and he has learned already, that it's not as easy as he might think it is. And there's Brooks' point from several episodes ago, too, about, like, you just can't say no to the king. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, and I agree with, with both of those points. Your point, Madden, and Brooks' point from several episodes ago as well, except... At some point, when you've tried it, and you can go back to the king and be like, "Look, I've given you my counsel, and you just ignore me," then it's like, "Oh, maybe, you know, maybe you can reason your way out of something like that. Maybe not." Which is what John Aaron did, and he's dead. They, they they mentioned in the chapter that Ned or that John Aaron gave him wise counsel all the time, and Robert just didn't even listen. <laughs> yeah, that's proving that's furthering your point, Scott. I don't. Um, his hands are probably tied. There's, maybe there isn't a whole lot he can do. Get your daughters out of there, too, maybe? I don't know. Something like this is a hornet's nest that he's entered into, and he's worried about the north but not himself in King's Landing. <laughs> it's just weird to me. Uh, I I do I – do, uh, I did like your point, though, Brooke, about realizing that Killing Lady was a, a big mistake because it does further the idea that the wolves are special, which is something I very much want to believe. Me, too. Well, should we uh, jump on to Scott with Tyrion, then? Or is there anything else you guys wanted to... Well, I, I will just... Um, <laughs> don't, don't laugh. Just the debt thing. You mentioned it kind of during your summary, but how big a deal is it, right? Like, are the Lannisters ever going to come calling for it? Triple B clearly doesn't care about being in debt. Littlefinger doesn't care. He's like, well, let's just keep spending. Does it matter in this in this world about being in debt? Well, actually, there's a good parallel with our world. So, like, pr- practically every government... And the world is in billions of dollars in debt. Yeah. And it's just it's just actually become a part of the economy. So, yeah, I don't know. And I, I'll, I'll add, too, this book was written when Clinton was taking the U.S. toward a surplus, um, <laughs> which was a very brief period of our time wow. before, before uh, we had some tragedy in this country and war expenses and all sorts of things. But, um, yeah, so written in a, in a time where we were actually working toward a surplus and then... Uh, but but very apropos for now, which we're like in more debt than ever, right? But it mm-hmm. just doesn't. I, like, thanks, Obama. Yeah, thanks, Obama. They kind of paint it as as a dire thing. Like, why are these people so irresponsible? And Ned's freaking out. It's like, well, maybe it isn't that big a deal, you know? I, I don't know. In a gold based economy, does it matter? I don't know. Well, he, well, what makes it perhaps worth thinking about is that uh, the crazy King Ares left the throne with a huge surplus of gold. Apparently the coffers were overflowing according to Ned. So uh, that, that kind of brings things into reality that 
you don't need like a functioning aggressive government to make a lot of money in this country, but it's very easy to spend it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on. I just wanted to throw that, that bit in there about the economy. So uh, Tyrion's chapter. Cripples and bastards and broken things, but the power of the mind can give you wings. Drinking and japing and yeah, ladies. Tyrion Lannister or Imp, if you please. So that chapter opens up with uh, Tyrion eating crabs with the higher-ups of the Night's Watch. He's making japes of his own. He mocks Alistair Thorne and uh, is flattered by Mormont and, and other members of the Night's Watch. He even goes to the point of drawing his steel, which is a fork, to stab Alistair Thorne in the chest uh, with his crab fork. <laughs> in a sober moment, though, uh, Tyrion's able to, to balance between this this fun, witty joking side and a very serious nature and he recommends that Alistair not be given Alistair Thorne not be given authority over training uh, in a very sober moment uh, where it's very clear that he's being serious they they go on through the dinner to discuss how the Night's Watch is suffering from a lack of quality recruits dinner wraps up and Tyrion and Mormont uh, the uh, head of the Night's Watch go and, and drink by themselves Mormont offers protection for Tyrion's journey south we learn that he's he's about to leave uh, and he offers protection for his journey south, and he makes an earnest plea to Tyrion to help them get more help to the Night's Watch. He paints a very bleak picture to Tyrion about what would happen if if something were to go wrong up here, and you know we're not prepared and we're not ready and we don't have quality people and we don't have enough people. And then he he indicates you know getting a little <laughs> getting a little mystical. He indicates that winter is is indeed coming. And that it's going to be a long one. He says that there have been white walkers uh, on the shore that have been seen by, by fishermen in the villages. And once again implores for help after kind of a kind of putting himself out there as, I know this might sound crazy, but we think there are really white walkers out there. Please help us. And still Tyrion kind of, you know, pushes him off and is like, you know what? I don't believe in this stuff. So Tyrion leaves Mormont. He's he's uh, about to go back to his place of, to rest before the long journey south. Uh, and he's taken by a flight of fancy to go up the wall one more time. And he goes up the rickety cage. And uh, when he gets up there, he meets up meets up with John, And they, uh, they have a nice walk and talk, some friendly exchange. And John asks Tyrion to deliver some messages to Winterfell for him. And again, a very honest and meaningful plea for Tyrion to help Bran in whatever way he can, to which Tyrion says, you know, how am I, how can I help him? But we might see just how Tyrion can help him in a little bit. They they shake hands and part as friends, and uh, you get a little misty-eyed reading that part. At least I did. Tyrion then, uh, for the end of the chapter, stares off the wall, sees the haunted forest, and he's actually slightly haunted himself. And you get the impression that he's been he's been touched a little bit by this last look on the wall. And might actually even be a little bit swayed toward there being something going on in, in the mystical element. Uh, and the last thing we see is that John vows to go find his uncle, Benjen, if he does not return. And that is the end of the chapter. So, I didn't give this in the... in the uh, Well, no, let, let's just start with Tyrion and his uh, his general behavior at the dinner. And uh, how, he, how he behaves amongst these men who are very different from him. He has very little in common with... Uh, and how he has been able to become friends with him over these several weeks, uh, you know, as, as, as they've learned about him. What do you think it is about Tyrion that allows him to kind of 
ingratiate himself into people like this that are so different from him? Well, he is naturally very charming. Um, and as we've seen in previous chapters, mostly to make up for the fact that he'll either uh, make people uncomfortable or make people um, uh, or make people point out his his uh, disability. So he uses humor and his advanced intellect and cleverness to um, sort of diffuse any potential situations. And it sounds to me, since the Night's Watch is made up of maybe some uh, less than stellar intellects, that would <laughs> be very popular. So he would be, you know, the one-eyed king among the blind when it comes to dinner or entertainment and uh, worldly stories, certainly as well. I'm sure they... Well, they get ravens up to the wall, probably not a lot of long, good, juicy stories about the South. So definitely an, an, an ideal dinner companion um, and has no problem um, not taking himself seriously, making fun of himself, which will also ingratiate anyone to anyone. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's the self-deprecation that uh, that people latch on to. They, they kind of they they feel like they can trust him. They feel like he's not any better than they are. I think part of that goes with the self-deprecation and part of it just goes with his physical appearance. Uh, that naturally feeds the ego of someone when maybe they're not necessarily trying to be better than the person they're talking to, but it feeds the natural man to, to feel that way sometimes. And it puts people at ease, uh, even though that if, if they were to match intellects with Tyrion, they would no doubtedly lose. Um, Tyrion's incredibly comfortable in his own skin to the point that he's okay uh, being self-deprecating like that because um, he just knows that it goes beyond his physical appearance. At least on the outside he is. Uh, sometimes I feel like Tyrion still struggles a little bit uh, confidence-wise and he allows his intellect and and his personality to cover that up a little bit. Um, sometimes I get the sense that there is some inssecurity still there. Which can you blame him coming from the family he comes from? I, with I think the drop dead gorgeous sister and brother that he has, and and all of that. I, I would I would partially disagree with you. So I I think he has some some insecurities, but it's not at all about anything with him. It is entirely about his family and their love for him. Right. But I yeah. don't think it's mm. about I don't think it's about him. I think it's mm -hmm. insecurity about their lack of of appreciation and love for what he is maybe mm -hmm. even outside of his family the, the lack of appreciation he gets but sure. i think his own confidence in who he is is very high and mm -hmm. he knows what he's capable of he does know his shortcomings too the self-deprecation thing is gold i use right. it all the time it's mm -hmm. awesome people it puts people off <laughs> and, and so much that like they feel almost uncomfortable with how uh how you're talking about yourself and they it's it's awful. trying to comfort you it worked no 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 I, i'm i'm not and nearly scott leaves instantly but better <laughs> i'm not nearly as confident as Tyrion. but the self-deprecation thing is just it's just an easy way to to kind of ease the ease the conversation it's it, it works really well I don't know that I'm close friends or even acquaintances with anybody who does take themselves seriously. It's just intolerable. <laughs> it can be. Yeah. Um, also, 
he is just extremely smart. Like even yeah. while pretty drunk and also food drunk, he's able to correct the um, uh, the Lord Commander's math um, with how many people are on the wall. Yeah. Or how many Black Brothers are on the wall? Just just men. Um, with under a thousand men, and I'm quoting from your notes here, Scott. Hold on. How many leagues are there in the wall? Three, oh, dang it. Whatever the case. It's 300 uh, miles long. It's 300 miles. It's 300 so. miles. 100, uh, 100 leagues and 300 miles. So it's right. three and a third men per mile. So the Lord Commander originally said only three men per, per mile, and Tyrion is like, just instantly, oh no, your math is wrong. It's and three and a third. third. <laughs> yeah. And I Even can totally so, see a drunk guy saying it that way, too. Yeah. And a third. <laughs> <laughs> the third dummy. Uh, and... I would say that that in itself is horrifically frightening, considering what we what scary? we know is beyond <laughs> the wall. Yeah, 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 yeah. After all that time I spent in the last episode trying to guess how big the wall is and how many people per mile and everything, uh, they flat out tell you in this chapter. I was pretty disappointed. <laughs> like, oh, I should have wasted all that airtime. Uh, and now I'm wasting more. Uh, I, wa- I wanted to say, though, about the, the Night's Watch. One thing that uh, struck me was when Mormont is talking about, to Tyrion about how valuable he actually would be here. And Tyrion is actually, I think, legitimately kind of taken aback. Like, me here? What, would I, what value would I provide? You know, and I, I think he's being serious. That is not, a, I don't think, a self-deprecating moment. I think it's just honesty. And, and you get a moment where Master Aemon calls Tyrion a giant uh, among us. Mm. And... I think the Night's Watch is very good at seeing the value in everyone. And sure. They've, they've become good at it over the years because they don't have enough people that they can detect what people are good at and how they would be valuable. And no doubt Tyrion would be an asset to this group. Well, and very rarely do you have people applying to be in the Night's Watch and, you know, holding tryouts or whatever, or a hiring fair for the Night's Watch. Um, they kind of get what they get and they have to they've had to learn like you said to find the talents that each individual person has who's sent to them i love to see i love to know what he means by Tyrion being a giant yeah i i was i so i didn't remember that from the first read uh that line or that whole exchange and i'm dying to know what master Amon means by that i so much want to just continue that conversation there's a part in the story and i i can't I'm sure I can't find it fast enough to actually quote it, but uh, he says that he that Master Amon's dark, milky eyes or white, milky eyes are just kind of moving around, uh, kind of checking Tyrion out, despite the fact that Mormont is, or excuse me, uh, Amon is blind, and you wonder what what does this guy see? You know, what does he have that's different than everybody else? I don't know. There's something there. Also, uh, on this chapter, they talk about White Walkers, which I thought, I thought we all agreed that White Walkers was a showism. But there is one thing that I'd like to point out that I noticed uh, when when they bring up White Walkers, is that they it's not capitalized. the The name White Walkers is not capitalized like a formal name. They're lowercase W and lowercase W, which to me, it says these fishermen from the sea, whether they are out fishing, they looked on the land and they saw lowercase letters, white walkers. Caucasians. It it could be, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Caucasians walking around. So it's kind of one of those things where it's not for sure that they're seeing others. They've just seen 
lowercase letters, white walkers uh, roaming around. Um, obviously, they think that there's something different about them, and that's why they reported it back to the Night's Watch and stuff. But uh, so I don't know. I don't think it's a formal name for them yet, and I also don't think that they're certain that they've seen others. But they right. have some the, suspicions. The, the others are very distinct from their prey, if you will, or their victims. The others would not let themselves be seen from a boat on the shore, right? But their victims, so the corpses that reanimate, I think those are the White Walkers, right? Right. I guess I'm, I guess I'm making an assumption that the people associate them together. That, oh, I see White Walkers, and I know they're not others, but White Walkers don't come without others. It's I like, don't know that they know any different at this point. Maybe they don't. I, I think I, they don't know enough about them to even know what they're seeing. They just know that there's been a legend around for some 8,000 years about these scary white beings and stuff that come and, and eat their kids and their wives and stuff. And uh, so they see these kind of ominous looking white things on the shore and they're like, Hey, you know, um, I'm not sure what that thing was, but it was white and it was walking. So I just wanted to let you guys know. <laughs> All right, Matt, I'm going to let that explanation stand until we get to the brand chapter. I'd love to. I'm just looking at it through the fisherman's eyes. Okay. Whatever the case, I was disappointed that Tyrion was faintly embarrassed for Lord Mormont when he was explaining the need for additional uh, men up on the wall like Tyrion was like, oh, old man's losing it uh, when he started talking about the White Walkers. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, I thought Tyrion would be on that team, that he would understand, that he would, you know, uh, pick up the the feeling of desperation and, and omnicity that the wall gives off, especially after he goes up to the wall afterwards and has his little heart to heart with Jon. But uh, he doesn't. He just thinks it's ridiculous. He's well, like, OK, see you guys. Do you think that's true? So I said in my chapter summary that I think Tyrion was affected at the end when he was looking off the wall. And that right. Mormont's plea was was a, a tiny seed maybe that led to that. Like he hears okay. Mormont, he dismisses it, he's like this crazy old guy. But then he's up on the wall and he's looking again, he's like, you know, maybe there's something to that. I could see that. He just doesn't reference the conversation when he's up on the wall, True. but I could see that for sure. Yeah, I he, agree. He doesn't for sure. Should we get on to Arya, guys? We didn't get to talk I'm about John at all, today. but that's okay. I'm the jerk today. Tyrion plus John forever. Number four ever. <laughs> Number four. Hold out the second E in ever. EVR. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about Arya for a second. Arya! Horse face! Underfoot! Sticking with the pointy end, Arya! Underfoot! Horse face! Sticking with the pointy end! I love this chapter. And you're going to see why in a second when I start gushing about Eddard. Uh, In this chapter, they're all sitting down to a family dinner in this lovely new land of King's Landing that everyone is just so happy in. And by everyone, I mean Sansa. And they... uh, uh, Arya ends up storming off from the dinner. She's still feeling incredibly guilty about Micah and Nymeria and everything that happened on the Trident. She goes and she locks herself in a room. Uh, people try to get her out, including the Septa, but she's just not listening uh, until she gets a, a softer knock on the door, and it's her dad. And I thought it was um, sweet that although she'd been belligerent the whole chapter, as soon as her dad was at the door, uh, she went and opened it, indicating she, she either trusts him or she's scared to death of him. Maybe a little bit of both. 
but she lets him in and they have a nice little heart to heart together. First of all, Ned discovers Needle, which Arya had taken out from her trunk and was uh, kind of playing around with and holding on to and reminiscing about John. Um, and he finds out that she has it and uh, takes her to task on it for a minute, um, talking about how she doesn't know how to use it and everything. Arya says, sure she does. You just stick it with stick them with the pointy end like John taught her. Uh, but Eddard sits her down and they talk about a few things. Uh, some of the more poignant conversations they had were the idea that they need to stick together, that the lone wolf dies, but the pack survives, and how he may not, she may not always like people like Sansa and the Septa, but Sansa is of her own blood and their family, and they just need to stick this out and everything. It also revealed during this chapter is that Nymeria didn't run off of her own volition, that Arya had to actually force her to leave by throwing rocks at her, which was just absolutely heartbreaking for me. I can only imagine how Brooke just sobbed as she was reading that passage. But um, if it hurts me to read about stuff like that happening with animals, I only know that Brooke must be just dying. So, and, and the chapter ends on kind of a note that I really enjoyed. And that is that uh, uh, Eddard comes back to talking about the sword and Arya of course is expecting that he's going to take the sword from her they're never going to see it, she's never going to see it again and that'll be the end of it uh, but instead Ned says that she can keep it and the next day she is summoned to a, kind of a private chamber where there's a man waiting for her who introduces himself as Sirio Pharrell and he is her dance instructor by dance he means sword instructor and he begins teaching her how to use a sword um he's a pretty strict teacher but she loves it and eats it up and that is the end of the chapter boy i liked this one it is a good um, chapter i really enjoyed seeing ned in action here with aria and uh, when you when you critique parenting as parenting's done so differently uh, across the board you've got the good and the bad you can take and i'm sure we could talk about you know things maybe he did wrong or whatever but i want to talk for a minute about what he did right and um i think about it with my own kids uh, in in him allowing her to grow within reasons with her interests and, and allowing himself to think outside the box a little bit and think about her for a minute. I know that when I was uh, a prospective parent, not quite a parent yet, I had these dreams of the perfect, in my eyes, in my estimation, children who, you know, would essentially be little clones of me, right? They would love hockey as much as I did. Uh, they would be listening and singing Dave Matthews Band songs as their first words would be Dave Matthews Band lyrics. And <laughs> they would have stuffed animals of Wookiees and Ewoks and, and you know, just love everything that I loved. And it's become apparent, as, as especially my twins who are now five, are growing up that that's not the case. And my son, for example... He has nothing, wants nothing to do really with Star Wars. Uh, he kind of likes hockey, but not to the point that he really wants to play it yet uh, and all of these things. But, and so I had to step back a little bit and go, but wait, I wouldn't ask for a different Jackson. You know, he's perfect just the way that he is. Uh, and so for me, it's been a challenge that I didn't expect before trying to figure out what it is that 
that gets Jackson, you know, that inspires Jackson. What is it that he likes? He doesn't care about superheroes. He doesn't care about Star Wars. What does Jack like? And uh, it's been a challenge and a fun challenge to try to figure that out and allow him to grow with it. We found out recently, I just noticed he loves to help me change light bulbs and he loves to help me put things together and stuff. So we got him a bucket of Legos and that's all he plays with now. <gasps> and it's it's been fantastic to to kind of figure that out and and figure out what he loves and try to focus that and allow him to grow within that. And so long story short, I love that, that Eddard does this with Arya. And instead of trying to fit her into the Westeros version of what a woman should be, Ned allows her to, to grow in the way that she wants to grow. He still reins her in. You know, he's going to get her a sword instructor if she wants to play with a sword, but he allows her to grow. And, um, and that's, a, that's one of Ned's top qualities, I think. And I really love seeing that in him. Matt agreed beautifully beautifully laid out especially you know a, a beautiful approach in our world thank goodness for your daughter Lily honestly Ugh. Yeah. a little disappointment Jack there but Lily yeah. for the win <laughs> but, Lily uh, happens to love Star Wars and so I think <laughs> that my wife is having the same kind of situation <laughs> is in the same situation that I'm in <laughs> where uh, yeah. now it's figuring out Lily, but it's so much fun and wouldn't ask for him to be a different way. Gender roles are overrated, Matt. Just remember that. Yeah, we're uh, finding that out quick. But, and Ned's finding that out quick too. But, but I, I do question with, with Ned, whether he has the luxury uh, that you have uh, in, in our developed and modern and reasonably sophisticated world. You have the luxury to, to encourage those interests. Mm-hmm. Ned lays out a very good reason why maybe he shouldn't be so, um, you know, be so accommodating. And that is his sister, Lyanna, who came to an early grave because of her nature. Or at least mm-hmm. he attributes it, attributes it to that, uh, being mm-hmm. a part of it. He talks about it directly to, to Arya um, and, and tells her that, that and still makes the choice, the same choice you make, Matt, you know, to encourage her interests and, and let her develop in this way. It's and very... that's the point that he does it. What's and that? That's what I love. And that's the point is that yeah. he does it. And, and, and despite his, like you said, that, that kind of warning in his head of my sister was just like this once. Yeah. It's beautiful. I just don't know that it's right. Time will tell. <laughs> in this world, right? In, in, in their world, I don't sure. know that it's right. Time will tell. Hopefully, yeah. Um, I thought that that was that was fantastic. I, I loved uh, some of the other little things that Ned said as well. I loved his ideas about lying. Did you guys catch some of that? Did that stick out to any of you too? Uh, if there's, if there's some honor. honor in it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, a man of such honor who's who's condoning this uh, under certain circumstances. Yeah, um, he almost adds some depth to Ned's character. He almost just kind of throws it out like a. <laughs> Like a throwaway, it's like oh, everyone lies. Right. Oh well, but you know, but you know, it means a lot more to him than that. I, I think to him, a lie is a very carefully measured thing that you don't do a lot. Going back to um, Arya's quote-unquote trial, do you think that answers the question you had, Scott, back during that episode of why did he let Sansa lie? Well, I put that in my notes um, because I, I was reminded that I, I brought that up when I was reading this, I was reminded that I brought that up in the last episode that he knows another version of the story that he's heard from Sansa's mouth. And yet she doesn't give that version to everyone else. And he doesn't call her out. He doesn't, he doesn't call for the truth. And at the time I wondered why. And 
I don't know whether it answers the question or not, but it's it's maybe a little hint, you know. He's like, well, that was a lie she felt she needed to tell, and similar to the encouragement encouragement of growth um, for Arya and and her her needlepoint, you know, he's not going to just throw Sans under the bus. He's going to let her learn and grow, you know. Again, to the point of the last chapter, maybe to the folly of killing a wolf, he's gonna let her learn and grow from that lie, um, mm. which is. You know, I don't know. I don't know if that's the right. reason, but it, it lines up a little bit. Yeah. Also, he probably sees a lot of dishonor in being a hypocrite, and he himself carries a huge lie with him and has for 15 years about the parentage of John, right? Is it a lie or is it a just he's, un- he's he, omitting he information? He is given a different story to Robert sure. than to his wife. So yes. Or a more hashed out story. Yeah, he's, he's, certain, yeah. he's, certain, he's not certainly not withholding the information, truth. yes. Yeah. yeah. And... Mm-hmm. and yeah, I don't know. Which is a form of dishonesty sometimes. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Caitlin has asked him in no uncertain terms, who is the mother, and he doesn't tell her. It's not really lying, but it is dishonest, It's it's and it's mean and hurtful. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, he, he, and I, I think he's, and, and for him, I think, um, I don't know whether the lie is more or less dishonorable than the act that he made in, you know, actually creating John, right? But, uh I don't. I don't know. Do you think he feels dishonor in that lie and in, in that withholding of truth? Oh, for sure, because he uh, respects Catelyn to an extreme degree. So even withholding information from her is going to be very difficult for him and uh, a major blemish on his honor, especially yeah. for for the sacrifice that she has made, um, essentially marrying him in the first place, which was not part of her plans and everything. Uh, sure, they've developed a very good marriage and good relationship, but it wasn't in her plans to marry him in the first place, and she did it out of duty, and she's put her trust in him and moved away from her home and lives in Winterfell now, and he still can't be completely honest, and he knows it, and she knows it, and he knows that she knows it. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's tough. That's a lot of knowing going on without anyone knowing anything. Yeah, Indeed. just a little side note. He does say that his brother Brandon and uh, Leanna had the blood of the wolf in them, which mm-hmm. I find interesting that Brandon had more than his share of the blood of the wolf in him, which probably means he was a little bit rebellious and, um, I don't know, uh, more charismatic than Ned is. I would have really liked to know his character. Yeah, I, wonder, I wonder if you know when you have the blood of the wolf, though. Is that something mm. others see? In, like maybe Ned has some of it too. Maybe Benjamin does. I have does. a ton of it. Can you can you see it in yourself, or is it somebody else has to see it in you? Tough thing to maybe see in yourself. But yeah, Brandon in in what we do read of him sounds like a very interesting character. I agree with you. Very charismatic, and like too. you said. Uh, Ned said, I think I think he said it a couple of times that he should have been uh, the Lord of Winterfell. That he was. He was a born kind of charismatic leader. I wonder if he's kind of like Robert Baratheon, maybe bridled his passions a little bit better, uh, but uh, kind of that same people loved following him because of his charisma. Mm. How about Serial Pharrell, just to finish out this part? What do you guys think of him so far? I love him. I love anyone who talks in third person. It's a, it's an interesting path that Arya is going down. It was, you know, she's kind of floundering around kind of like my my son Jack was trying to figure out what he liked, but now he's found it and uh and she's found it. And that's it's I'm excited to see where that goes. Do do you, do you want to bring up the the uh, potential misogyny brook? 
or is that I was I was trying to bait hole? her for it. I was gonna let her. <laughs> I don't. Uh, I disagree I with you. If, if so Paul, we can start if a fight a about little, it. A little lighter in this chapter than it does in other chapters. Okay. But just just to point out the fact that Sirio calls Aria a boy, and Aria corrects him and says, "I'm a girl." And he's like, "It doesn't matter. The sword doesn't see gender. Boy, girl doesn't matter. So why does he have to call her a boy? Why so, not just a girl? Or why okay, not an okay. it? I yeah. just think it's uh, a habit. He's used to teaching boys, so he's like, "Look, you know boy, what? Look, boy." And, and and here. So, and he's like, look, don't get hung up on it. You're a sword. Who cares? Don't, My don't... distaste for that inherent misogyny just makes me not want to discuss this at all. It is pointless. It's just another case of George not taking this opportunity in this completely alternate universe to erase some of that. Ugh. Ugh. Now, now, if... I'd spit if... if I wasn't in my own home. Go for it. <laughs> if Sirio, if we had a look into Sirio training a boy, and if he called her a girl, then we'd know he's okay. What? No, that I'm would be equally as bad because, because oh, no, because then it would still be the natural insult that it is less desirable to be feminine. So calling a boy a girl is supposed to oh, provoke him into being less effeminate. Do oh. the, same, the same reason. He's just trying to make the point about the sword. I don't think he would, though. But Whatever you don't the know case. That. <laughs> <laughs> Just teasing. Uh, shall we move on to let's some to, real misogyny? Yeah. yeah. All right. Buckle up. <laughs> let's, let's open that can of worms. Silver hair and purple eyes, always on the go. Kicking with the sun and stars, call him Cal Drogo. She knows just where she gotta go and won't be tarrying. Look how Westerosa comes, the nearest Targaryen. Okay, so to be fair... He has given Dandy a lot of autonomy, which I appreciate. And this is kind of a catch-up chapter, but it's a solid one. Um, so Danny is out riding with her attendants, which are collectively known as a Kaz, which is how I'm going to pronounce it. And it's made up of her handmaidens, her Dothraki blood riders, Sir, Sir Jorah Mormont, and uh, her dud of a brother, Viserys. So Danny has fully embraced her Khaleesi title and the ways of the Dothraki. Um, she's like wearing leathers and a painted vest, whatever that is. She's greased her hair, again, whatever that involves. She's toughed out her bloody riding blisters from riding a horse for weeks so on gross. end. So gross. And that's a real thing. <laughs> and uh, she also continues to take it from Drogo from behind every night without complaint. So good times. Anyway, uh, they're out riding in this chapter. She's feeling the free spirit and she commands her Kaz to stay behind while she rides out over the plains of the Dothraki grass sea via an order to Jorah to tell everyone to stay behind. Viserys loses his crap over being ordered around by his sister and rides up to her anyways. He tries to wake the dragon all over her, but she's feeling feisty <laughs> and she hits Flash pushes him away. And so when he goes in for like his mighty dragon beating, uh, Jorgo, one of her uh, horse rider protectors, wraps a whip around Viserys' neck and pulls him away. So uh, they have a little discussion. Uh, Danny tells uh, Jorgo to let the whip go. Uh, Viserys catches his breath and commands Jorah 
who has sworn himself to Viserys to kill all of the laughing riders. And Jorah looks to Danny, uh, looks to Viserys, and is like, ah, uh, no. Danny realizes how sad and pathetic her brother really is and ends up making him walk uh, behind the rest of the horse riders, which is the greatest shame a Dothraki can know. So he's basically being publicly humiliated and he has to walk a long ways, which is going to be painful for him. Um, so Danny, uh, after this whole kerfuffle with her brother, gets back to camp feeling invigorated and ends up taking her husband outside that night for their nightly nucky and uh, ends up taking the reins, so to speak. So instead of him taking her from behind, which is customary for Dothraki, she uh, she climbs aboard and cowgirls him, but like facing the right way. The or right so way? Descri- described Look, in the chapter. That's very she, she 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 actually says she wants to see his face tonight. So um, that all happens, and that's great, apparently. Uh, he ends up calling out her name, which I guess score for Danny if that's what she's looking for. And the chapter ends with the discovery that she's Prego and the very unfortunate reminder that she has just turned 14 years old. (laughs) (laughs) Mm, Super teen pregnancy. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So that is the Danny chapter. Uh, She has uh, really stepped into her role as Khaleesi and has embraced it. And she is loving being Dothraki, which is good because she, and Viserys, her brother, have been on the run for a long time. She hasn't really had a place to call home and people to um, rely on. And she's really found that with her handmaidens, and she's starting to find that with her husband, it sounds like. Do you guys have anything to say about the sex? Go ahead. <laughs> well, I would just say before before we get to the sex, <laughs> are we just going to always call it the sex in this podcast? It makes us seem like uh, 13-year-olds like Danny herself. Sorry, the love making. Th- is that I better? I think it's very mature. I I'm fine with that. Uh I just wanted to say that I uh Brooke may rake me over the coals for this, but I love this chapter. I think this is um it, it's like she called it a catch up chapter. It is, but so many authors struggle with these types of chapters where you just say what happened and you know, try to give give a summary. George has paint, has given us this chapter that shows Danny grow up here physically through her body becoming this hard-toned Dothraki machine of, of horse, horsemanship uh, emotionally uh, to the point where she can stand up to her uh, horrible brother and her physically imposing husband, uh, mentally to the point where she can see things for what they are, um, specifically you know, her brother being a sham you know, and, and maybe seeing herself as somebody that can hack it in this life. Uh, and somebody that, that belongs here. Um, she even grows waistlinally when we find out that she's pregnant. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and, uh, and even numerically uh, by turning 14. Uh, that is actually fairly accurate. I would agree that this is definitely a Danny growth chapter. One of the things that super bugs me about George is even when there is a female point of view chapter, usually the emphasis is on some male character within that chapter. Like the Arya chapter we just read. Yeah, it's all about Ned. Um, but here it is all about Danny. And uh, I like that. I think she's a fascinating character. And it helps that she is sort of a woman. Ugh. Getting 14. there. Yeah. Uh, 
you're right, Scott. Wow, that was fantastic. I loved uh, the examples that you used. I and I agree about authors struggling with this. How many books do we read where you know they a chapter ends and a new chapter starts, and it's like ten years later, and I'm I'm this totally different person now. They cop out and they and they just have them grow up and and then carry on. Uh, this one. We actually see all these different examples of her growth, and that makes it such a rich chapter. One thing I've found on these rereads of these books is – and I'm not going to spoil anything. Don't worry. Is that uh, these chapters that my first time through seemed kind of throwaway-ish um, because they didn't have a ton of action. And actually, this one <laughs> did have some action <laughs> at the end. Wow. The, it, uh, They're riding horses. <laughs> now I've lost my train of thought. Um, seemingly actionless chapters. These, these, as we've called them, catch-up chapters, or some I've heard call them throwaway chapters, are actually some of the richest in in content and character development. And it's been so much fun on this reread to really drink these chapters up and and revel in the characters that George has created. I, I, I'm just, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. I love seeing her grow up. Agreed to borrow a phrase. That's really what makes these books so meaty is George excels at showing, not telling. Mm, well said. Yeah. All right. Well do we said. want to talk about the backdoorsy sex now? <laughs> not me. But... <laughs> I, got, I got through my point. So, And I think that's all to your point is mm-hmm. we've gone from the start of the chapter of her taking one position is the only way I can think to say it, but I don't mean that strictly in the literal sense, to uh, to taking another. And um, we saw that growth. It was shown to us. It was demonstrated to us uh, throughout the chapter. And, and so I think that, you know, the end completely justifies what you already kind of eloquently said. If you want to talk about it more, would have. <laughs> Does I'll I'll just I'll just uh, say something about the pregnancy. Does the pregnancy correspond with her seizing control and uh, and and being more of an active participant in the act? Well, at one point, well, she was well, we were following through her through her growth at her lowest point when her blood blisters were the worst, where she was crying into her pillow as she was being taken from behind. She actually described having a dream that night Mm -hmm. and it was a dream about the dragons. And so once again, she's taken a lot of strength from, from her heritage and um, her dreams of, of dragons. I'm sorry, I don't remember the specifics, but it was, it's certainly her touchstone. And that was the turning point. Then things started going, Going up and ended with her, um, yeah, ugh, her her being more assertive in the bedroom yeah. or outside under the stars. Well, ev- everywhere. It wasn't just in the bedroom. It was her whole life turned around. Uh, yeah, her physical pain started fading away. Um, she became more mentally acute and, and involved. Uh, she rode at the front of the of the uh, pack instead of the back, so she could see the gorgeous lay of the land. Um, she kind of started being more assertive in her whole Dothraki lifestyle. And mm. yeah, that, that dream was uh, for sure the turning point. Uh, she was cleansed by fire. The, the dragon actually set her like blue fire at her and cleansed her with the fire is, is one of the ways that they kind of described it, I think. Um, mm. Very cool. 
I'm the is worst. It... Whenever there's like a dream chapter, my eyes just glaze. Okay, uh, keep going. I'm with you. <laughs> Isn't it interesting that Danny and Viserys both draw strength from their heritage, right? Well, they are very dialed into their heritage. They're very focused on it. But what they get out of it is different, right? Viserys tries to leverage his heritage to exercise control over others. He's always talking about, oh, he's the rightful king because I'm the blood of the dragon. I'm going to beat the crap out of you because you woke the dragon. I'm such a little dick. Accurate. And uh, Danny uses her heritage to strengthen herself and become a better person herself rather than trying to exercise control over other people. And then the authority that she then exhibits over others, whether it's Khal Drogo or, or the rest of the Kalasar or even over Viserys when she hits him in the face and then makes him walk, is just a byproduct of that personal strength that she's gained through, yeah. the, the, through her heritage and focusing on that. It's, um, it, it's, it, you see this in your life all the time. Sure. Pe- people that are pretending to be something significant and everyone can see them for what they are. Honestly, it happens all the time. I, I can't think of any examples right now, but like you, you probably no, no, have... tell us some examples from our <laughs> office. Do it. Oh, no, that won't happen. Uh, <laughs> the biggest examples may be talking right now. I don't know. But um, so Viserys is not fooling anybody, right? Everybody sees him for what he is. And mm-hmm. Sir, Jor- Sir Jorah, who, you know, we should remind, we should remind everyone that is not the reasonably handsome gent that portrays him on the HBO show is is a a brutish ugly bear looking kind of guy he's he's not handsome um not the way they cast him in the show which is at least borderline handsome um borderline he, he's pretty handsome in the show see yeah see he's rugged matt girls like the rugged mm. things sometimes he's a little balding but that just means he's high in testosterone so he's probably a very considerate lover <laughs> Is that what being high in testosterone means, that you're considerate? I just uh, we, audibly snorted. We're in trouble. I couldn't think of a better word. Yeah. <laughs> Enthusiastic is maybe more Enthusiastic, accurate. I think, is the word you were more looking for. Uh, Which, you know, they're, they're, they equate to each other. Anyways. Uh, so, uh, Sir Jorah is the one that kind of is finally put to the test of showing Viserys that everyone knows him for what he is. Everyone's thinking this. He's finally the one, and because it's Viserys forces his hand, he makes him make a choice. Viserys forces his hand and says, no, you need to put her in her place. And he's like, no. Everyone else is thinking the same thing. They're all laughing behind his back. Sir Jorah is the one that finally has to call him on it and be like, look, dude, this is the way it is. And mm. hard times for Viserys. It'll be interesting to see how he responds to this. Mm. Yeah. It's, uh, something just came to me. We know that Jorah is batting for the other team, right? Uh, we do. He's working for Baratheon. He's working for Varys. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Very good. Um, oh, I thought you meant like sexuality wise. Brooke, you are just Brooke. Get your head Brooke out of the gutter. Okay, it's just dwelling. It's like Jorah's gay. What? Is this all you want to talk about? <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> and and so it would actually have. If if Jorah would have listened to Viserys in that moment and started cutting up the whole Kalisar, um, well, one, he would have died. So maybe that's why he didn't do it. But it actually would have furthered uh, what he was sent there to do almost, right? He was kind of sent there to spy on Danny with the intention of her eventually dying. Uh, or at least, you know, making it to the point that Khal Drogo and the Kalisar aren't going to come over and help take over Westeros. 
So it actually would have helped his case a little bit to side with Viserys there, but he didn't. Uh, only in the short view. I think that would have hurt him long view. If I mean, well, I think he would have died yeah. uh, <laughs> because you know, one that the, they would have killed him. So I wonder if. So what I'm saying is, I wonder if he was. Uh, am I giving him too much credit by saying he just did it for Danny, or is he doing it a little bit for himself too? I think it was a heat of the moment type thing. I mean, honestly, he's situated himself so close to um, that family that he could make his move at any time, right? Mm -hmm. He's just kind of laying in wait. Yes and no. He's situated himself in in such extremely dangerous circumstances that the moment he makes a move, he may accomplish something uh, like taking Danny's life or, or something like that, uh, or Viserys, either way. Uh but as soon as he does, he'll be killed. Right. <laughs> so he kind of he kind of has to play the waiting game to some extremely rare circumstance where he can both accomplish his act and get away. Yeah, because his end game isn't to kill Danny. His end game is to get back to Westeros and live Big a normal pardon. life again. Yeah. And so, killing Danny or at least spying on her is just the means to the end, right? So, thanks for talking through it with me. Should we talk about Bran now? <laughs> yeah, we probably ought to. Oh. Five, six, seven, eight. Brandon Stark, won't you come back down from that tower your mind's been flying from? Your legs don't work, but they don't really need to work when that third eye's showing you new ways unexplored. And the summer's gonna come, you know it's gonna come, summer's gonna come, and boy, you're gonna fly away. Uh, a fun chapter for Bran. So the, the chapter opens with Bran watching out the window as, as his little brother Rickon, who's I think three or a little over three, three. Uh, runs around the, the yard with wolves, Summer, uh, Grey Wind, and Shaggy Dog. And uh, we meet, uh, as he's watching, we meet Old Nan, who is the oldest person around, maybe anywhere. Uh, she is a storyteller, tells stories to everybody, about everybody, seemingly knows an endless amount of them. And we get a look into Bran's head as well. He feels left behind. He feels betrayed by his family that that, that they left him in this state. Uh, you know, when he was when he was um, you know unconscious. Uh, Nan tries to cheer him up by engaging him with some stories. First, she starts with Bran, starts it on Bran the Builder. Um, then she moves on to the others, uh, and then finally a story about the last hero who tries to find the children of the forest in order to combat the others. Um, but is hunted as he tries to find the children of the forest, and his whole party is kind of killed uh, by the others. Uh, they're interrupted, though, before they get to the fate of the last hero, uh, because visitors are here, and it's Tyrion, as well as his uh, his entourage from the Black Wa or from the from the uh, the Night's Watch, the Black Brothers. Um, Tyrion and the rest are down in court with Rob uh, and Master Lewin. Um, they're, the guests are greeted with an unsheathed sword, which is a sign that they're not welcome. They're not being courteously accepted by the court. Tyrion kind of disarms that whole situation with his wit, and he appears unintimidated. Um, he, he then, you know, gets down to his business. Rob says, you know, what are you here for? Let's, let's get down to it. He gets down to his business, says, Bran, you're a cripple, but you can still ride a horse. And he gives designs on a saddle. Uh, that could be designed to allow Bran to ride and give some instruction on how to train a horse up that would allow him to ride a horse. Um, and it just seems like a very nice thing to do, and everyone is kind of moved by it. But just when things seem nice in the court, 
The wolves enter with Rick, with uh, Rickon and immediately head for Tyrion. They start growling and nipping at him. They're they're basically in attack mode, and they have to be called to heal. Tyrion wets himself uh, and announces his departure for an inn. Rob says, "No, no, no! You you were very nice to us. Stay in Winterfell. You have you know he sheathes his sword and says, hey, you're welcome." Uh, Tyrion says, "No, I prefer the inn," um, and and takes off. Uh, they're going to have dinner with the Black Brothers, but first, time for a nap. Bran dreams uh, during his nap of climbing uh, a tower, being about to fall. There's some menacing gargoyles, and the one of the main points from that dream is that he cannot fly in that dream. He was able to fly the last one. He cannot fly in this dream. Um, he wakes up to Hodor, and Hodor carries him down to have dinner with the crows. Uh, the main piece of news at that dinner is that Yorin is indicating that Benjen is most likely dead, um, he's been beyond the wall for a long time. Rob and Bran won't believe it. Bran indicating that um, he's sure the children of the forest have saved <laughs> Benjen, um, since he just heard Nan talking about that them in the stories. Uh, after dinner, Rob takes Bran back to his room uh, for the night. They have a nice brotherly moment, a uh, little chat, talking about optimistic futures where their families will return, Bran can ride out to meet them, and they go on adventures together, and it's a very loving, brotherly, brotherly, brotherly moment. And that is how the chapter ends. So, Yeah, so wolves all over Tyrion. What's up with that? Man, I don't get it. Uh, and especially, since I think, Brooke, you brought this up <laughs> offline, that Ghost is totally cool with him. Yeah, yeah. Well, Ghost had a little bit more experience with him. Uh, and and learn from John's comfort around Tyrion. Okay, um, it's weird if 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 you take that and extend it. So Ghost is comfortable around Tyrion because John is comfortable around Tyrion. Then these ghosts have entered a situation, or sorry, these wolves have entered this situation where now everyone is actually projecting reasonably warm feelings toward Tyrion. You've helped my brother. You've helped me with this saddle thing. I'm hopeful that I'll, I can ride. They're generally hopeful and, and you know, thankful uh, for this for this information from Tyrion. So if they're picking up on vibes from their owners, this doesn't add up. So there's something else right. going on. Exactly. It's funny because we've been led to believe up to this point that Catelyn and everyone else is wrong about it being Tyrion, being the murderer, right? Yes. We've only seen these sides of Tyrion that are very... Uh, kind and even, you know, he's still Tyrion, but he's generous and he seemed genuinely concerned when he was at the wall. He seemed genuinely happy when John found out that Bran wasn't dead. He just gave them instructions on how to build a saddle for Bran so he could still ride his horse. So just when you think, no way it can be Tyrion, all of a sudden these wolves enter and make him pee his pants and stuff. And <laughs> and these last couple chapters that we've talked about, just these couple brief chapters before, have led us to believe that the wolves play a big part in protecting this family, right? And so I love that George does that. He he leads you along, and you feel good about yourself, and you feel good about your decision of Tyrion being a good guy, and then he throws a little wrench into it. And go, oh, but the wolves hate him, and remember, the wolves are kind of insightful that way, so... Yeah, I I tried to piece it together. I'm like, well, if if Nymeria or Lady had been around when they found out that the dagger was Tyrion's, then maybe they could have maybe they have some sort of ESP amongst each other or something and they know and so they're now after him, but neither of those wolves are around, so you'd have to say that 
they're connected to all the Starks in some way, not just their owners, which seems like a stretch, um, you know, to have that information. So it, it's almost it's almost like you have to just go back to animal instinct of they don't like this guy for some reason, which mm-hmm. I hate that because it just yeah. doesn't seem meaningful. It could also be less about a sign from the wolves and more about a sign uh, from Rickon. Like maybe um, he has a bit of a uh, a wild or aggressive role to play in the rest of the book. So perhaps that. something set him off to send the wolves to, you know, um, sort of half attack or whatever it was. I think that yeah. would be cool, but I'm not sure that we were given enough evidence for that. I love that. I was going to bring that up in our next segment. <laughs> so, um, sorry. No, no biggie. I'm coming no back biggie. to it because your explanation worked a little bit for the White Walkers others explanation in the previous chapter that we talked about it. But in Oh, it is in your notes. Sorry, Matt. Okay, keep going. Sorry. No, no biggie. It's it's not a problem. Old man, mm-hmm. the spinner of yarns, these yeah. characters in in fiction generally are, are they're not fools. They're meant to hold places of reasonable esteem of knowledge, right? Uh, even if they're not the most intelligent people, they have information of some kind, and they're they're generally not thrown off as being, you know, silly, uh, you know, silly people with no bearing. And old Nan specifically says uh, in the chapter, mm-hmm. and the White Walkers move through the woods. Lowercase. Lowercase. Then Bran says, "You mean the others?" Bran said curiously. The mm-hmm. others, old Nan agreed. Mm-hmm. Well, that implies they're the same thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm not saying they're not. I, so, so you're saying the fishermen think that they don't know whether they are. I, or I'm not. saying that, that. Yeah, I'm saying the fishermen don't have absolute certain evidence and knowledge that White Walkers or others, call them what you will, exist. That's all I'm saying. And I'm just going back to the original point was White Walkers is a phrase that's used to mean something in these books mm-hmm. that we thought was an HBOism. Oh. And clearly isn't like they no, they mean something in these books. Okay. And point made. Old Nan has made them the same thing. Where Brooke, yep. you, you were saying they're different earlier too. Mm-hmm. I think it's up in the air at this point as for what the text has told us as to whether there's a difference between White Walkers and others. We know that they have these corpse animated corpse things, White. Uh, but we don't know if they're. You know what I mean? I, I think the terminology is dicey. Well, I think that maybe he does that on purpose to say that these people really don't know as much as as they think they do, or not even that they think they do. They don't. They don't know as much about these creatures as they like. That the, there's been a legend for a long time. Yeah, um, but the distinction between others and whites, and calling them one or the other white walkers, or maybe both of them white walkers, it doesn't matter as much to to old man she doesn't seem to care to your point scott where she said oh you mean the others and she's like yeah that's that's what i meant you know it's it's no big deal to distinguish between the two yeah it is the ramblings of an old lady maybe she yeah just doesn't care about the value of the word that yeah. they're the same or they aren't ramblings of an old lady if anything we've seen how seriously everybody takes old man it's true <laughs> yep. they, they it's it's kind of the same way they take stories of the others oh old mm-hmm. nan tales but yep. they all respect them. It's interesting. Respect them in the sense that they like to hear them. Uh, I I think people put stock in them, though. They put stock in what she knows. Not super seriously. 
I think some of them do. Tension. <laughs> of all the things to argue about. Prof- okay, I'm breaking out oh, Professor man. Scott again then. Uh, I just want to talk about the fact that – so during during this chapter, Bran feels uh, – he feels like he's been abandoned by his family. And nobody knows. Nobody sent ravens back. You know, Master Maester Lewin says, we sent ravens out to your mom and dad so they – you know they should know and everything, and we don't have any evidence that any raven has been de- has delivered a message to anybody about Bran's status. And I think he said that they sent three. We could check the chapter for sure, but I think he sent three ravens out, and mm-hmm. none of them none of them came home. None of them none of them found found delivery. It's just shocking because so I researched this a little bit because yes. I, I know I was the, hoping you'd get to this. They, they use you know we've used carrier pigeons very similar to to the way the maesters use ravens to deliver messages and frequently use it over much shorter distances. But carrier pigeons during World War II had a 98% success rate of delivery. Wow, that is high. Yeah. I I would never would have expected it to be that high. And and those, you know, those would have been much shorter distances, right? We're not talking about a whole continent of Westeros, but, you know, I'm just surprised that none of these ravens got there. And it does it mean there's something afoot or is it just, you know, yeah, they got eaten by hawks and, okay. and maybe that the maester should switch to pigeons instead of ravens. Here's what I'll <laughs> say about that. The, so listen up. <laughs> um, so who, the, the ravens don't go directly to the recipients of the letters, right? No. Yeah. They, they go, weren't going to go, go directly to, to Eddard. They go to maesters. Yes. That's all I'll say. So, okay, so you're, you're, you're just dangling it out there, so I'll just continue it. So you're implying that the messages may have been delivered and just not communicated because people are burning yes. them or whatever. Yep. What motivation do you have to do that? Exactly. That's what makes it interesting. The maester in King's Landing is Grand Maester Pacell. Yes. So what's his endgame? Right, but we've but, also seen how much influence fairies and Littlefinger have over all of the operations in King's Landing. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think you could actually blame the Maester, the Maester Network. In fact, I think that they are probably pretty neutral. Mm, I agree <laughs> that I agree that Littlefinger and Varys have a lot of influence, and who do they have influence over? Perhaps I don't know. I'm just mm-hmm. I'm just thinking deviously here. Maester should be should be neutral. Should C- be certainly. We don't know much about Pycelle yet. Nope. Um, but He's old. my main point is what value, what <laughs> I'm going to get them back. I'm going to hide the information that their son is alive. Like, how does that, it doesn't, it doesn't really serve anything. Hiding an information, yeah. hiding, hiding a, a, a message from a Raven. That's like, Hey, need reinforcements at the Trident. That's a valuable message to hide. Hiding a message about your son being alive is like, he's going to find out eventually. It's, not really a time, you know what I mean? It's not a time-sensitive thing. It just yeah, seems I know. Different. And we appreciate your research, but I'm not sure that we should put too much stock in this just because we don't actually know, like, the time it takes for a raven to get down. Maybe they have, like, they switch off the ravens, like, by, like, they have uh, coops, like, several down the way. Like, I think it's just dangerous to presume too much. Mostly, I didn't want I, I didn't want to go down that rabbit hole. That was that was Matt's doing. That was My totally main me. point was maybe they should fucking use pigeons. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That's as, that's as deep as I was going to take. Ninety eight percent success rate. That was as deep as I was going to take. <laughs> that Matt took it to a conspiracy. 
I, I take full responsibility for my conspiracy theory. I own it. I'm owning it. Uh, there's there's more stuff in here. Let's see. The uh, dream um, about falling and the non-flying. Bran's clearly not in a good place mentally. He thought that when he was going to be able to fly in that dream that he was actually going to be able to get his life back. He clearly isn't. He's not in a good mental state right now, this kid. Uh, the dream of riding is a, a line of hope for him, something that's put him in good spirits again. Um, it just doesn't look good for this kid. I don't know. What do you guys think of that? I really like that George doesn't shy away from the fact that Bran can be disabled, but still a, like a, a high operating character within the story, I guess. It's very inclusive. It's... um. It's like when, uh, you know, in the Avengers, did you know that Hawkeye is actually almost completely deaf and wears um, hearing aids? Yeah. That doesn't detract from the story. It actually adds to it. So Bran um, having this disability and, and not being magically fixed is is a, uh, a really good detail. Well, guys, should we do some Davos After Dark for a few minutes? Let's do it. All right. Uh, so thanks for joining us, uh, everyone who's going to drop off now. Next, uh, our next episode's chapters are going to be Eddard 5, John 4. Then we get a second dose of Eddard with Eddard 6, Catelyn's fifth chapter, and Sansa's second chapter. So join us next time. But now let's do some Davos After Dark. Davos After Dark. All right, guys. Um... Gosh, there's a lot to talk about. So much. Uh, yeah, I I kind of wanted to talk about Master Maester Amon and and Tyrion being a giant. Is there anything else that anyone would like to talk about more than that? I'd love to start with that. I just don't know that I have anything to contribute to it. Mm. What I like to think about in this case is later on in the books, and I don't remember which book it is. We find out that Maester Amon is actually a Targaryen one of the last dragons remaining. Yes. And up until then, I always really enjoyed him as a character, respected him just as all the other characters within the book respected him. But that really like nails it, that he has some important perspective over things and that he can see Tyrion as being more than just his physical stature is... Um, uh, great foreshadowing, I think, especially since uh, right now where we're at in the books, Tyrion is sort of like off the beaten path. So hopefully he'll come back onto it and uh, be a bigger player. Yeah, Amon was a was a like fifth or sixth in line for for succession to be king, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they ended up actually getting to him. So through you know war and whatever, they actually got to him. It was going to be his turn. He turned it down because he was already mm-hmm. a maester, and. Uh, let his brother, his younger brother, do it. Um, so he, he's very much a an interesting character. You don't get a lot about his motivations. I don't, at least that I don't remember about why he turned that down, other than having already made a commitment. But it it does kind of lead to him having an interesting perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in fact, to to add the the quality of his character, it was after he was offered the kingship and turned it down that he went to the wall. And one of the reasons, and he said the main reason he went to the wall, or it is said that one of the main reasons he went to the wall was so that he would not at all be considered for the kingdom anymore. Yeah. And so that people who might be, who might not like the current king, his little brother, 
uh, wouldn't couldn't use him as a yeah a yeah. reason to rebel and, yeah. and place him Saved on the throne life. or something. Yeah, but I, but that still doesn't lend me any theories about a giant among us. I'm really right. stupefied. I wasn't kidding in the main part of the chapter. Targaryens, uh, a trait of Targaryens, it is said, and we see it with Danny and stuff, is they're able to see certain things, whether through dreams or visions and things like that. And it seems like some Targaryens have the ability to do this. And I wonder if, if Master Aemon, he, Maester Aemon, he sees it more than just, it's not just insight or something or an inkling that he has, but he's had some sort of vision or dream, much like Danny, you know, has had with her dragons in the chapters that we talked about. Uh, so, as to as to Tyrion, now does that answer the question that you've been talking about of of, of Tyrion being a giant or what that is? No. Well, but, um, there is a theory out there. Yeah, you're going to get to the one I think you're going to get to. That Tyrion is a Targaryen, right? Um, and maybe you know uh, what, what? There's a I can't believe I'm going to go back to Mallrats again. <laughs> I won't. I'll, <laughs> You know what? I'll put it aside. But may, maybe maybe Targaryens can smell their own. Um, right. Yeah. You know, and um, I I just wonder if he sees he sees a future in Tyrion to fulfill one of these prophecies. That's not really a theory. I really can you recap this theory? I haven't heard it. The theory is Ares either raped or. Uh, or was or was in love with and mutually in love with Joanna Lannister. He probably raped her. All right, yeah. all right. <laughs> if you want it to be misogynistic in every way, yes, he just raped her. The woman had no control at all, and yeah. uh, Tyrion is a result of that union, and he therefore is a Targaryen and could be one of the three heads of the dragon. Mm, he does have white hair, like white blonde yeah, hair. Yeah, that is. They talk about his super super pale hair and mm. uh it also lends a little bit more um finality or l- literalness to when tywin says stuff to him like you are no son of mine yeah at first you just think that tywin's being a loser and a kind of a dick dad but you know maybe there's something literal to that good theory yeah yeah so i, I don't know I, maybe that's what he means uh may, maybe he's trying to Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Do you know what I think I know about you? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, like, hey, did you know you're a Targaryen? And Tyrion doesn't take the bait, and so he's like, oh, he doesn't know. <laughs> I won't tell him. Maybe, maybe he's not supposed to know. I, mm. When reading this, I was, I was literally just dumbfounded as to what he really meant, and also dumbfounded as why Tyrion would let him get away with saying something like that without explaining it. Right, and really, five books later, we still don't know much more. No. Okay. Uh, what did you guys think about the last hero? Scott's got an interesting theory about the last hero that I kind of liked. Mm. I don't know how much I like it, <laughs> but it, it but it struck it. me. Um, I just when when old Nan was telling the story about the last hero and how he was wandering with his party, um, you know, and the, she explains that his horse was eaten and his dog was eaten and his fifteen companions were eaten and by the others or, or taken by the others. Uh, and just as you're about to learn what happened to him, supposedly, you know, they bust through the door and stop the story. And I just like, maybe he's still out there. Maybe the last hero did, you know, did enough to push back the others, but knew the job wasn't complete and is still out there. And maybe he's cold hands. Um, and 
I don't know. Just a just a th- I don't have any evidence. Which completely have- turns around the theory, the very popular theory of Benjen being cold hands. But uh, I think it's an interesting side to consider. Yeah, it's a good catch. But wouldn't they have brought up the last hero more often, like from other sources? What do you mean? Like, I I, I would say that George wouldn't drop the identity of cold hands in book six from a, a throwaway old man story in the first book. Good like, point. I think that, I think that cancels out the possibility, but I, I, I think it's better than that. Benjamin's cold hands, which I still don't buy because Bran would have picked up on it. I don't think I understand what you mean that he wouldn't drop his, his. Okay. So, so your theory is that cold hands is the last hero, right? The original last hero from 8,000 years ago. Yeah. Right. So that story or the last hero, to my knowledge, hasn't been mentioned by any other source um, or even Bran uh, for the next five books. Yeah. And so for us to finally find out the identity of Cold Hands, if we even are ever privy to it, I don't think that he would reference, you know, like a chapter in the first quarter of the first book. Well, like, yeah, it's just unlikely. It's, uh, it's not his modus operandi, if you will. A lot of people think that the last hero is just, a another name for, I read this again on the, uh, westeros.org boards. Uh, but a, a lot of people think that, uh, the last hero is just another name for Azor Ahai and the prince that was promised and all that stuff. That those are all kind of the same person in in different versions of the story through different cultures. Yeah, um, if they are the same person. Yeah, if they are the same person, right? Um, and that the last hero is just another. It's just the North's way of explaining that legend. Right. Um, uh, and so you know, I don't know. Uh, um, it, it, it's it's your your point is strange to me because whether whether it's cold hands or not he has dropped this information about the last hero and it's either just completely throw away meaning we aren't supposed to take anything from it um or it will be revealed at some point by someone and hasn't been revealed yet so i don't know i I don't know that we know that it'll be revealed as something important or not but he leaves this kind of stuff all over the place that's true he does and i wonder if somehow he will tie that all together and maybe it's not a huge revelation maybe it's a a smaller revelation that is part of a growing group of evidence to lead to a larger revelation i don't know if that makes (laughs) sense um getting meta yeah we're getting crazy here Mm -hmm. but uh yeah really cool Mm -hmm. so rickon and the uh the wolves could that be an indication into how rickon turns out I would say yes, just just from, yeah, we have talked about in past uh, deities, but his his the fact that he is now being raised by a wildling. Would, exactly. Yeah. On a, indicate- on a very wild land, mm-hmm. the island of Skagos. Is- I just want to note that we've given more play to Rickon in our podcast than George has in all five books. <laughs> and I love it. I just want to throw Last it out opportunity, there. George. I can't wait I mean, to talk see about the last he hero being as. ignored. How about Rickon being ignored? And he's mm. flesh and blood. I can't wait till he comes back. I just want to know so badly what he's doing. Yeah. I honestly don't know how George is going to shoehorn all of these 
tied up loose ends into two more books. How, so, so much. So how old is Rickon now and where we are in the books now? He's, well, he was three at this time, so he would be like six. Has it I been three say? years? Is that how long it's I been? It's, I think it's been three years, yeah. I don't know. We should we should we should definitely get a timeline and see how where how much time is really. Uh, I'm really last. surprised you don't know this. Actually, I should. Matt, oh, disappointed. Um, I'm disappointed in myself. Yeah. <laughs> Something so. to take away for this group. We'll have it next time. Right. So uh, for next Davos after dark. But so I, I can't say what I was going to say. I, my hope is that I've had this vision of like because they they say on Skagos that there's like unicorns and stuff like. I got this vision that Davos is going to show up on Skagos and Rickon's just going to be like running this army of unicorns. He's going to be like right. riding mm. one and like, you know, gray or shaggy dog at his side. And he's like riding a unicorn and just be like, look at me. I'm up here. You know, I, I think he retakes the North. Yeah. Well, yeah, that was, that's where my story goes. Like he, mm-hmm. he mounts this army of, of unicorns and people and overtakes the North. Yeah. yeah, but not in the name of the Starks. I mean, he's been too—he's too young to to That's to know point. that heritage. Now, now his culture, now his loyalties lie with the wildlings. So, yeah, that, well, that's with a... one wildling who is less wild than she used to be, but, right? But but your point is really well taken, and I was thinking about this the other day that uh, all of the other kids have some sort of Stark or even Tolly in them, right? Some sort of something that. They've kind, of, they've kind of gleaned from one or both of their parents. Rickon was too young to really get any of that. We know nothing about him. Which... We know nothing about him, and he really doesn't know anything besides probably just inklings and feelings. I mean, how much do you remember from when you were three years old about your parents? Uh, for me, it's all just kind of like glimpses and images in my head. You know, I didn't, they didn't, that I know of you know, pass on into anything to me that stuck with me to this day that I'm aware of. And I don't know that Rickon got any of that either. So he's, yep. he's almost pure, uh, wildling. But yes, true. But, but with the blood of the Skagos, the Skagosi, while they are, you know, beholden to the Lord of the North, they're, they're very wild. They're not really, they're it's rumored not, that they're not cannibals. to be relied upon, but there are hints in there. I don't remember where this, absolutely stated but or whether it's hints or whether it's again just theories i'm reading from westeros but uh westeros.org but that uh ned's and brandon's and liana's mother was skagosi and well there's something there's something out there about that it might just have been a theory i read but it's possible that he's on skagos and finds his heritage there (laughs) finds his grandmother's side of the heritage and and get some strength from that. I don't know. Mm. Plus he always has the anchor of shaggy dogs. So we can't like belittle that. That'll certainly be a tie back to the Starks, but I love this theory that he has some Skagosian in him. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, without looking at the books or looking up anything online, John is elected as Lord commander um, for the night's watch when he's, well into his 16th year, and he's 14 when he went up there. So I think there, it's in the third year of yeah, the books. Yeah, basically three years out. Yeah. Well, he is, he just had his 14th name day um, mm-hmm. during this last chapter we read, right? So Yeah. Or no, sorry, it was last week's chapter from him. Mm-hmm. So. So not cool. too much time has passed. So much has happened, though. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right, guys. Well, good Davos After Dark. Indeed. Solid. Solid. Agreed. Okay. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Let's adjourn for the uh, for the time being and join us next time for more Very fun. Very good night. Yep. Peace and blessings. <laughs> or Bye. war and discomfort. <laughs> I don't know. I'll take the second one. Good night. Good night, guys. <laughs>